Stanford University. And the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So the idea is to try and run a field experiment on management practices and to try and uh, see if we can get some causation from management to performance. And going to Scott's uh, you know, challenge earlier, it is an open question as what matters. And you know, Jonathan was saying earlier, is it complementarities or can we show there are any practices that even in small changes have an impact? So the way we tried to go around addressing this question is we took a bunch of large firms, whereby large firms we mean 300-person firms, in Mumbai that work in textile. So why Mumbai? Well, Mumbai is the commercial capital of India. India is a very nice place to do uh, field research in. You know, it's a developing country, and it's, it's pretty cost-effective. It's nice to go out and work there. Uh, and we picked one industry, which is uh, broad-woven textiles, cloth, so basically cloth in shirting and suiting. And we randomly selected uh, these large uh, firms into treatment and control plants. The treatment plants got six months of consulting, for, uh, free consulting from another consultancy firm, not McKinsey or Censure in this uh, instance. And the control guys got a month. So why did they get a month at all? They got a month because one of the classic problems in field experiments is you have to get data off the control group. So it's always a problem you face. It's very easy to deal with the treatment guys. You go in there, you give them something that they want. You collect data before and after. The control guys, you've got to get before and after data. So in that case, we have very heavy treatment for six months for the treatment guys, basically light treatment for the control guys and an ability to collect data. We're going to collect weekly data on all the plants we have done for two years on a whole range of outputs. And I'll show you this in a lot more detail, but basically the, uh, the, kind of the, the broad things you found, one of them in some, well, given the discussion earlier, it's not obvious actually how predictable it is. Depends kind of what angle you come from, but you see very large increases in profits and pro um, productivity. And because of the randomized nature of the intervention, you can argue this is causal. A lot of it's just come through better quality control. And I'll show you a set of kind of much more detailed evidence. But basically these firms are in the what I call the kind of Fordist model of production. Uh, they make massive amounts of cloth. They make it as fast as they can. And then about 20% of their manpower is involved in fixing and repairing at the end. And part of the intervention is trying to move them slightly more towards a more modern manufacturing process of if you find a defect, fix it on the spot so it doesn't permeate. Um, and a second issue is around decentralization of power within firms. John's also, as you discussed earlier, has also been involved quite heavily in theories on organization of the firm. And what's one of the things that was less obvious to us and just turned out as we run the experiment is better management practices have led to pretty heavy decentralization within firms. And again, talking to Bob on this, you know, I guess my interpretation of it and what we see in the ground is uh, the better management practice improved informational flow within the firm. So the owners have felt more relaxed about letting plant managers take decisions, in part because the owners know what's going on, in part because they can spot uh, theft. And then finally, there's been a big increase in computerization. So basically, as you've needed to collect and process data more, you can use more computers. So as backdrop, what's, uh, what do these places look like? Here's a picture of one of the factories. I put these up to give you an idea. These are large uh, factories. Typically, the, this is one building. Uh, you can see it's in a uh, gated compound with several floors. There are typically two buildings per factory. Most firms, the medium firm has two factories and a head office in downtown Mumbai. So I put this up to kind of highlight these are complicated organizations. My sense in terms of manpower and complexity, you know, there may be a similar size to something like the GSB. I don't quite know how many employees the GSB has, but they're big. They operate 24 hours a day. You know, there's no way you can run them in, a, in, a, in an ad hoc manner. Here's a second plant. Again, you can see a large... Uh, you know, complicated facility. Uh, here's, uh, here's the first stage of the production process. Coming back to, um, Paul's talking about CAD-CAM 
uh, in terms of, you know, CAD CAM being an old technology. You can see some of this stuff looks like it's left over from Imperial India. I think there's some pretty old equipment lying around. This is the first stage of making fabric. So when you make fabric, uh, what happens first is you get all these, these spools of yarn. So the input to this is uh, yarn thread. Uh, upstream, there's a separate industry called spinning, which takes kind of bundles of cotton and spins it into uh, yarn. Uh, and these things, are, this machine rotates at incredibly high speed and basically winds all this yarn into, onto something called a warp beam. So that's stage one. Uh, this thing would spit out several warp beams a day. These warp beams are then fed onto a, basically into the second stage, which is called weaving. And here are these warp beams. These things rotate round and this uh, shuttle goes back and forth very fast and puts the cross thread. So that's the weft. So all fabric has a warp and a weft thread. And once you put both of those through, coming out the far end of this machine is the fabric. So reams of fabric come out very fast. Um, because of the way these factories are set up, because their quality is basically very poor, the third stage is a massive mending and repair area. So they'll have huge rooms full of people who are spreading cloth out over these backlit uh, wooden structures, you know, even the fact that they're manual. When I was, go I was in China earlier, in, you know, about a couple of months ago, and some of the Chinese factories have automatic things that pull this cloth down. These guys are pulling this cloth down manually, spreading it out, looking, finding defects, mending it, pulling a lot of the cloth down further. It's very time intensive, and it takes up about a fifth of the manpower. And also, I mean, the other downside is they can't fix anything. They're throwing away, on average, about 7.5% of the output because the quality is so poor. So, in fact, I should ask Paul to raise an anecdote I remember he told me a story about when, uh, when well, why do you tell the story about when you were the stamping in the, I think it was the hubcaps, that this isn't a problem unique to uh, India? So I, when, when I was an undergraduate, I worked in um, the General Motors factory where we were making bumpers. And um, I was on the uh, repair section where the, if, if a bumper came through and had a flaw, I was supposed to take it off the, uh, the main line and put it onto the repair line where it would go by a repair machine, get polished, and get put back onto the main line. This was after it went through copper plating and then chrome plating, and I'm sorry, and then nickel plating. And it was after the nickel plating and before the chrome plating that they would do this repair. And one day there was, um, I, I went there and there was a flaw in one of the presses, and every bumper that came down the line had a flaw in the same place. And I was moving the entire production line from the um, uh, from the uh, the main line onto onto the repair line where these racks and they'd go by and, and until they were repaired and the repair line got completely filled. Um, there was nowhere left to put the flawed bumper, so I pushed the stop button on the line and the, I the plant manager visited me and told me you never push the stop button on the uh, on the production line. The uh, never push the stop button anyway. I got read out for doing this and you know I said well what am I supposed to do and, you know and just put them on the floor put them anywhere you know but don't push the stop button you know um, so uh, that's the story that, I mean that you know that's uh, US automotive I guess before lean this, this was Oldsmobile I mean that, that anecdote struck me as so representative of what's going on in these factories so I'll come back to it in a minute but the same defect is just going through and through and through and they're just producing the same defect just you know, continuously, and this is why 20% of the guys, and they're fixing the same thing. You can imagine how frustrating that is. Um, the factories are also just generally disorganized and dirty. 
uh, his various shots from factories. I mean, you know, we visited, we have 20 factories we visited. You could, you could never get a shot like this from a, from a US factory. I mean, to the extent you could ever even find this, there's no way they'd let you take a photo of it and put it up on a, <laughs> a, on a presentation. I mean, out there, it's no big deal. I'm taking photos of this kind of thing. Uh, you know, and it's very hard to get high levels of efficiency when your factory is in general chaos. Um, the plant floors are often disorganized. The aisles are blocked. Uh, I mean, this is the complete reverse of lean manufacturing. You can see uh, you need to get equipment up and down the aisles. You need to get warp beams in and out. You need to get, when you doff the uh, fabric at the end, you need to get the fabric reams out again. Here there are some table and chairs. They couldn't really explain what it was here for. Apparently been here to mend something historically. They kind of left it around. Here's an old piece of equipment. None of it is like endemically terrible. You add this all up, you can see I can get pretty low levels of efficiency. Another thing you notice is the repair system uh, was kind of very old school in the sense of you just repair stuff when it breaks down. So again, you know, the whole modern manufacturing theory is you repair stuff in advance, you have routine maintenance. Why? In part because it's more efficient probably to repair stuff in advance rather than wait till it breaks down, but also primarily it reduces variability. So a big problem is you're trying to deliver an order and your machine breaks down at the last minute. You generate huge variability in output. Uh, inventory rooms are pretty chaotic, so here's just bags of yarn. Yarn's a big deal for them, it's expensive. Labor's cheap in India, but capital's expensive, materials are relatively expensive. Not much ordering. Here's a, uh, another yarn storeroom. We didn't actually try and do anything particularly high level and complex. We went for basically extremely basic, low-hanging fruit, the kind of stuff that, at least our belief is, there is some complementarities between them, I come back to them, but even individually they're good. So things like preventive maintenance is carried out for the machines, is carried out following the manufacturer's recommendations. They don't make up their own maintenance schedule. They do what it says in the manual. Uh, the shop floor is marked where the machine should be. Some stuff about quality defects. When you have a defect, you record it, you analyze it, etc. So stuff that in European US factories would be pretty standard. Uh, in these factories is, frankly, as I've shown in a minute, pretty not standard. Some stuff on inventory control, etc. So here's a bit of data. So what we did is, um, we recorded the adoption of these practices before, during, and after the intervention. So here is months before the initial diagnostic phase. So what happens is all the plants have one month of an initial diagnostic phase, both treatment and control. The tr and the diagnostic phase goes in there and basically collects data, including builds a back series of data going back a year, and then gives them a set of recommendations on what they should do. So tell them you need to put in inventory control, quality control, etc. The treatment guys then get another four months implementation that helps them carry it out. The control guys will basically leave and come back one day a month to collect further data. So what you can see is in advance of the consultants turning up, they're adopting about 25% of those practices. So the stuff I showed you, they typically don't have you know, quality control. They typically don't have routine maintenance, et cetera. The consultants go in at month zero. Um, and several things, some of them are kind of surprising. So less surprising, the treatment guys improve. So they adopt a lot of these practices. The consultants are sent there on the ground. They're essential guys. There's one person for every two plants. It's pretty intensive. They're there for several months. They manage to get them to adopt quite a lot of them but they don't manage them to get them to adopt anywhere near 100%. So, you know, one big challenge is why on earth they have experts that are very expensive that are there, that are shown a minute, are showing kind of proven impact. They don't listen to them. Uh, the control plants improve, but by much, much less, and this is how we're going to get identification. There's a third group of plants that are interesting, which are these things called the excluded plants. So these firms um, own multiple plants each. 
and we don't actually provide treatment control to every plant. So if, you know, Catherine and Jonathan are each own a plant in one of these firms, you may have Jonathan as a treatment and Catherine is completely exempt. She's neither treatment or control. So she would be an excluded plant and we go into those as well and collect management data. And what you see is this is increasing to some extent and this is entirely copying. So we're not sending consultants in on the ground, they're just basically replicating it over. Again, there's kind of this asks, leaves as many questions answered as it solves in the sense that, you know, why is it they don't copy a lot of this over? So, you know, they're copying some of it. There's very slow adoption. Um, but certainly this changes over time. One of the things that's kind of interesting is we know from the anecdotal, I guess, uh, PE and kind of uh, consulting literature, it takes several years. I mean, Jonathan's coming back to earlier. It takes just a long time to change practices. We're in there for a year, and it's just very tough to put in place big changes. What do we do? So how, what are the areas we see improvement? So one of the things I mentioned is quality. The biggest single improvements in terms of productivity really come from better quality. So beforehand, massive amounts of manpower, 20% of the manpower spent on re repairing defects, about 7.5% of outputs thrown away. How do they fix this? Well, is a, ba a set of kind of very simple systems. Historically, they have these things called quality logbooks. So every time there's a defect, they write it down in the checking stage, you know, who the weaver is, the, the piece number, the machine number, etc. They write down some information, and then there's a quality grade. So A is the top grade. It means perfect. Below that, by the time you get to D, it's basically rejected. So AB means pretty good piece of fabric with some small defect in it. They record this because Buyers are often asked for refunds and say, hey, my you know, piece of fabric had a hole in it. I want my money back. And they have to go look at their logbooks and work out whether they give them their money back or whether the buyer's basically trying their luck. Never really systematically analyze it. So one, so one of the things consultants get them to do instead is uh, change the recording format that something looks like this. It's actually faster to record it in. And it, again, it has the weaver piece number, et cetera. But the key difference is they have columns for each of the major defects. So here there's a two in the broken pick, which means there's some broken pick defect in the uh, fabric. And this is a big change for them because they computerize it. So this they can now feed into the computers. Every day they now meet up, they analyze the quality defects numbers, and this is extremely effective for, for improving quality because you can look at defects, you can spot them quickly and fix them. So uh, you know a good example of this would be stains. So a lot of the fabric has, uh, will have a staining problem on it. So particularly, I don't know, if I look at Paul's shirt, it's a white fabric. If that has oil stains in it, uh, I don't think it does, but if it had oil stains in it, it would be a problem to try and sell it. Oil stains sound easy to, to fix, but they're not actually that easy to fix because they come from multiple sources. So one thing can be that the guy handling the weaver hasn't used gloves. Another thing can be the oil ducts have broken and stuff's leaking out, or some can have overfilled you know, the oil valves. Once you have the quality defects data, it's much easier to fix it. You can see that it's one weaver, one shift, one piece of machinery. Um, they fix it. As soon as they fix it, they deal with it. So you don't get the kind of the problem Paul was talking about of thousands of defects running through. And here's, in a sense, the output data for quality. There's something called the quality defects index, uh, which is a weighted average of quality defects. A very high number means low quality. It means bad quality. So here's bad quality up here. Here's good quality. We normalize in red the control and in black the treatment plants before the experiment. They're basically, there's a bit of movement around here and you can see the standard errors are reasonably wide because we don't have a big sample. Um, but after the experiment the treatment plant's quality improves while the consultants are here and there's a kind of mild although not significant ongoing downward drift. So what's, what's happened is quality defects have fallen by about 50 percent and this alone is an enormous improvement for the firm because they can save 10 percent of manpower, you know, increase output effectively of about 3 percent. Um, so you can do similar, uh, so you can show in a regression table it's statistically significant, etc. 
Um, so then you can do similar things for inventory. Uh, beforehand, you know, now we reorganize the inventory, put it on shelves, uh, we bag it, put labels, enter it into the computer. Various amazing things happen when they do this. For example, one of the plants discovered uh, they used to make shirting and suiting fabric. When they organized their storeroom and recorded all of it, they'd stopped making suiting about two years ago, but they discovered large bags of suiting yarn in the back of their storeroom. And, you know, you realize they've held this stuff for two years, of course, and they can now sell it off, but no wonder they're carrying excessive inventory. Um, the other thing they do is, to the extent they have excessive inventory, they make shade cards. So these are cards that record what the fabric is, write a bit of information about the strength and the stitch. They send it to the design teams down in Mumbai, and they design it into new products to try and get rid of the excess inventory. And again, inventory falls um, over time. And then finally, output. So they did a set of, whoops, they did a set of changes in output, marked out the factory floor, uh, did these things called snag tags, where they go around, they put these little labels on the machine, so that when the uh, factory, off, when the when the maintenance men come around, they can pick off the tags, spot the defects, um, organize the uh, spare parts, the tools. Um, went from kind of the very old scrappy handwritten notes to computerized records. Here's like my favorite photo. You can tell how well they're looking after their uh, records based on the large footprint on the on the uh, you know. The record, you can see how carefully they're monitoring stuff beforehand. Uh, they put up uh, these boards. I mean, it's an interesting question on piece rates. They don't provide uh, extremely high piece rates, but they now give them about 10% piece rate with the board. So again, you know, an issue, I guess, on complementarity. There's no point providing piece rates if you don't provide feedback to the workers because they can't tell how they're doing. As soon as you put in piece rates and you put them up on the board, it's relatively easy for them to tell who's doing well, who's not doing well, and cross-compare. And again, performance <coughs> improves. Another thing that we note, by the way, that's kind of interesting uh, that you get from the regression tables is um, in column one is running uh, OLS. So this is exactly the same as uh, Kathy, for example, Ishkanashi's crew and Pranushi. So what we do is we have a panel of performance data and a panel of management data, and we run regressions where we put in basically plant fixed effects and time dummies. So we're looking at the change in performance versus the trend, versus the change in management, versus the trend. And you see here, in this case it's not significant, but in many of the indicators we typically get a significant effect even in the OLS. In the second column we go to instrumental variables, sorry, instrument the change in management with the amount of treatment. So basically you're getting an entirely causal effect. And you see in almost all of these, these coefficients go up. In this case, the impact and output's tripled. And the reason this happens, and I think comes back a bit to the reason these guys are badly managed in the first place, is they don't tend to change until stuff goes wrong. So what's happening is you have these factories. Performance is going along. On average, it's even improving. They're not that receptive to the management changes. As soon as things start to turn down, performance starts to slump. They're much more receptive <laughs> to changing management practices. So you know the effects that you see in OLS uh, seem to be a downward bias from what we get in, in terms of running experiments. So when you run cross-sectional surveys, the extent we get something, at least on our evidence, suggests that the true impact may be even larger. Uh, so we also look a bit on decentralization and IT. So I mentioned you see another change you see going on in these factories uh, is decentralization of information from the of control from the owners the, of the firms down to the plant managers. So a typical situation is, uh, imagine I'm the owner, you have Peter and Bob as the two plant managers. So I'm the owner, I'm, I live in Mumbai, 
the town is Tarapur, it's about a three-hour drive outside Mumbai. I typically go out to Tarapur every day, spend half the day at Peter's factory, half the day at Bob's factory. Of course, I, as the owner, don't want to do this particularly. I'm spending a huge amount of time commuting there and back and forward. I'd much rather let these guys run the thing without me. The problem is I can't trust them in my absence. So one of the problems you see, for example, is a lot of theft. So if I, turn up, if I don't turn up on the factory, I worry that Bob, for example, is stealing parts from the factory, reselling them, you know, I don't know what's going on. It's hard for me to stop this, so I have to come in every day. If instead you start to have uh, detailed performance metrics, I can track things on a daily basis. It's much easier for me to spot what's going on. I don't need to turn up as much. Uh, I also rely that Bob has a better ability to run his own factory. So when you give them better ma management tracking systems, better information tracking systems, we see increased decentralization in the sense the owners don't turn up to the factory as much. The plant managers have much more autonomy on hiring and investment. And we measure it here in a range of different indicators and take the average. But this decentralization index is kind of an average of hiring decentralization, uh, investment decentralization, choice over plant and products of the factory manager. And this is increasing very dramatically in the treatment firms versus the control firms. The other thing we look at finally is computers. So these factories are pretty low tech uh, in terms of computerization. So here's a picture of actually a relatively high-tech factory. Most of the factories have one office out on the factory floor uh, with some guys using computers. Here are kind of the old green screen uh, you know, computers. The average factory have something like two and a half computers for 3,000 people. Uh, here's a, a much more low-tech setup where uh, one woman with a computer in the corner and her dot matrix printer, quite a few of the plants don't have any computers at all. Again, we see very big effects on computerization. And the reason for this is, in some sense, is pretty intuitive. If you put in process these modern practices involving data collection, uh, you know, data processing, data analysis, you need much more computerization to do it. So coming back to the discussion of complementarities throughout the day, you can see that clearly there's a complementarity between, you know, kind of Bengt was talking about earlier as well, between capital uh, and practices. But also, I mean, it's not just that they needed the computers to put in the systems, but they use the, the computer much more intensively than they used to. So there are a lot more people who are looking at computer-generated reports and are, are running things on the computer. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very good part. I guess we highlight, right, so highlight that in part because of this big um, debate over skill bar te skill technical change, the kind of finding that you see uh, in the US and Europe, across Europe, a big increase in income inequality. And part of the reason people think this is going on because of an increase in the returns to skills. But what is the technology driving this returns to skills? Well, coming back to what Kathy was talking about earlier, one of the technologies we think may just be improvements in management practices, because modern management practices are much more IT intensive. The use of IT requires much higher level skills than traditionally, for example, in these factories. So as you increase, if you adopt modern management practices, you just see there's more hours spent on the computer, which increases the demand for people that can use computers. So for these factories, this has been kind of IT intensive, but also skill intensive. Uh, so, you know, what, finally, why aren't they introduced before? Um, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a lot of issues about the market. So I'm going to skip this card and I get on to the kind of final set of stuff. But basically, they have very high tariffs. Uh, Chinese inputs, which is the obvious competitors, heavily tariffed. Uh, it's very capital intensive, so hard for new entrants to enter. 
and it's very hard for the current successful firms to expand. They have this big problem about reallocation. So coming back to the Peter and Bob story, if I'm the owner and these are my two factories and I have to spend all my day managing one of the two of them, it's very hard for me to set up a third factory. And in fact, the best managed firms out there, when you ask them, why don't you expand? You know, they're very profitable. Why don't they expand and set up new factories? The primary reason is I don't have enough time in my day. I'm already running two factories. You know, the only reason they manage to do that is basically have people they can trust. Who are they? Their brothers. You know, brothers-in-law, sons, etc. So the thing you find out there that seems to explain firm size is number of male family members, the people they trust to run the firm. So the biggest firms are the guys with four brothers. The smallest firms uh, <laughs> typically tended to be the person, you know, the, the brilliant guy but had no brothers and no sons, so he had no one to... India has the kind of the same formal legal system as the UK, but just has a very slow court process. So when you ask them about can they borrow money, yes, so they have collateral to start off with, but as an outsider, no. So none of it's impossible, and you know, the, you'll come up with of people have done this. So most of the owners started off by trading and then they maybe bought 10 looms and then they did well and scaled up. The, the kind of US example of fantastic manager raises a lot of money, mortgages his house and goes in and starts a firm is, it's not zero, but it's, it's very low. So it's, yeah, it's like a market in treacle. Everything's moving very slowly. So it's not like reallocation doesn't happen at all and entry and exit doesn't happen at all, but it's a slow process. And so you get these firms that persist, that are badly run, that are making money and aren't driven out of business. You know, what, when the other question is, why don't they improve themselves? Well, the evidence we found on the ground is primarily informational. So when you go in there and ask them about it, they've mostly heard of the, you know, so there are several hypotheses about it. One is they've never heard of these practices before. That's mostly not true. Most of this stuff they've heard of before, they're aware of it. The big problem seems to be they don't believe it matters. So, for example, on the quality issue, uh, you'll go talk to them and they'll say, you know, you can improve your quality by introducing quality control systems. Now I go, you know, but my quality's good. It's uh, better than Vinod's down the road. There's, I don't have a quality process, you know, quality control process problem. And in a sense, it's true compared to their local competitors. And, you know, it's related to the fact they don't face global competition. But in the bigger scheme of things, their quality processes and, you know, many of the other processes aren't fantastic. And they look like European and, I guess, U.S. firms of 20, 30 years ago. There's a frontier. It's improving over time. Indian firms are 30 years behind the frontier. This is kind of moving them 15 years you know, towards the frontier, and the frontier will keep evolving. The fact that the Indians are bad, so many of these firms are badly managed, and it's an informational problem. You know, think about the U.S. auto industry. It took it at least 20 years to figure out what the Japanese were doing differently and to come anywhere close to implementing what was well documented. It was no... Um, but they just initially wouldn't believe it and then couldn't believe it and then couldn't do it. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.